Okay, October 9, 2011, lecture discussion number Intermission Review 7, which is what I've been calling these. And before uh, we get started, um, and we've got a huge pile this evening, oh my goodness, a huge pile, I just want to say thank you to Mark uh, Ruiz, I hope I get that right, Mark, from Helsinki, Finland, for his kind comments that he sent by email this week. It's great to have you along, Mark. And exciting for us to know that you are out there. And just so you guys know that haven't been here for a while, that uh, this lecture goes all over the world. And it's astonishing to me sometimes and to see what they all write me. Most of it friendly. There's a couple of people, one in Arizona that i got to work on. But anyway, I'm kidding about that, aren't I, Jennifer? Anyway, I'm trying to push through this portion of the marriage ceremony pattern. And... Again, uh, I was talking to uh, Dave about this. Let me just address this quickly. I am intentionally, so that you know, I am intentionally making references for these folks on the Internet. Amanda asked me, why do you go through fast, so fast through these references sometimes and you don't write them on the board for us? It's because if I'm going to run out of time, I make sure that they get in so the folks on the Internet can hear them. And they do this, of course. They... Uh, they go, uh, they stop it and slow it down and go back and forth a lot until they get all the references. Uh, and that is exactly what I'm doing. I'm trying my best to include all you folks out there, and there's quite a few of you. <coughs> Excuse me. But I'm trying to push through this portion that we're doing now on the marriage ceremony pattern as quickly as I can. And it's very easy to get bogged down in this subject, and that's exactly what's occurred. And you're going to see that. We'll soon discover today we're going to slow down to a crawl. Uh, this is the day that we move into Moses and Aaron at Numbers 20. And if you are aware of Numbers 20 at all, you know that it is a significant place in Scripture. It has so many things that seem to result from it. But we're going to reconcile Numbers 20 today as best we can, or at least get started with Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy has a lot of references to Numbers 20, and all of them seem to be very, very difficult to put together, and they are very difficult to put together, 137, uh, 326 of Deuteronomy, and 421 through 24. They are at best deeply puzzling, at worst uh, irreconcilable, it seems. And what is that? When I tell you there's a great mystery trying to get these two to fit together, what do you now know? You know, there's something really cool hidden there. There's a great treasure hidden here. If you can't figure it out the first time through, then that's good news. That means that uh, bring a shovel, get, pack a lunch, because there's something there that you have to know. And we're doing all of this, by the way, because of Psalms 118.26. That's how we get here to Numbers 20. Psalms 118.26 is, uh, blessed is he who comes, and I should write that down, blessed is he who comes, I'll just put the blessed down so you'll know, and that is the companion to what? That is the companion to behold the bridegroom comes. So try to think of them as um, as bookends, if you will, or two pieces, uh, or part A and part B, or two part A's, whatever you wish. But uh, behold, the bridegroom comes, is Matthew 25, 6, uh, which we discussed last week, which comes out of the parable of the ten virgins, right? So I'll put that on the board for you. And who is you? Yes, it's Amanda. That's correct. 
And this is also Matthew 23, 9, but, but ultimately, blessed is he who comes is Psalms 118, 26. Behold, the bridegroom comes is out of the ten virgins, Matthew 25, 6. Who says, behold, the bridegroom comes? Who, who tells you that he is the bridegroom? Jesus Christ, God in the flesh himself tells you that. And now you know that you are in the marriage ceremony, don't you? As you know, blessed is he who comes was shouted by the great multitude as Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem. They all got in front, and we covered this last week. They said, save us now, son of David. Hosanna, save us now, son of David. And Christ quotes it at Matthew 23, 9. That's why I wrote that on the board, because he said that he would not come back to Israel until they said that to him with real meaning. In other words, an authentic saying to him. So he is saying that what happened when he came into Jerusalem was not authentic. Now, as I stated last week, I I agree with those uh, who recognize Moses as the author of Psalm 118. And some disagree with me, which makes them what? That's right, makes them wrong. It's okay to be wrong. Some people like being wrong, as I've said many times. But it only makes sense if you have the Moses is the author of Psalm 118, which is the root cause as to why we end up in Numbers 20 today. When you see all the pieces You can't have Psalm 118 being written by somebody other than Moses, I don't believe. And I also believe that Edward Chumney is correct to place Psalm 118.26 or Matthew uh, 21.9 or Matthew 23.39. Oops. I forgot the three, didn't I? I hope I said Matthew 23. Sometimes I get them confused because I'm what? Wow, I like the front row today. No. I'm old, lacking medicine. Ah, Blessed is he who comes, again, alongside of behold, the bridegroom comes, is placed, if you look at your bulletin, at step 10 of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. And I think it's absolutely correct, and this is where I agree with Edward, Edward Chumney, uh, who wrote The Seven Festivals of the Messiah, a book you should have in your libraries. I think he was correct in putting them together at uh, at step 10. Okay? They belong together. And both of them are shouted by who? 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, 16. Who, who shouts both of those? Michael the archangel does. Okay? Got all of that? I know it's a little bit of review, but that's what we're doing because we have one visitor. Anyway, Jesus Christ is the one who comes. It's one of his titles. The one who comes. Very important to recognize the immensity of that or the significance of it. He is the coming one, and the implications of that title is uh, is oh extraordinary as you would expect. Immediately, you've got to ask a couple of create uh, questions, right? Immediately, he's the one who comes. He's the coming one. What's the implications? What's the immediate question? Yeah, when is he coming? But even bigger than that one. Why? Where is he coming? Usually people want to know that. But why is he coming at all? What's this creation of his like? How's it going? It's a cesspool. It is, it is disintegrated into sin and death and darkness and 
More sin and more death and more darkness. Why not what? Flush it. But he doesn't. He comes. He comes to save, doesn't he? What's the next question? Why does he save? Why is anyone saved ever? Does anyone deserve to be saved? So why does he save anybody? If you don't deserve it, why does he do it? Very important. But then the uh, the all or the converse, if you will, why does he judge and put an end to sin? Because he does that too. So why does he do both of those? And both of those questions are critical as you go through your scripture, as you seek wisdom. Okay, but for now, for today, we're going to note that he comes uh, um, more specifically for our subject today. He comes for the church, which is the bride, and he comes for Israel, which is the wife. And we said that last week as well. You need to know the difference between the two. Israel is the wife, and the church is the bride. They are not the same. If you think they are the same, much of Scripture will remain difficult for you to interpret correctly. They are not. The church goes to the judgment seat of Christ, and by the way, that uh, is not a judgment of salvation. That is a judgment of witness or of works, but the church goes to the judgment seat of Christ when he comes for the church. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. But Israel goes where when he comes for them? He comes for them at the end of the tribulation, and they go into the millennial rule or the messianic kingdom. So I have the consummation for the church... When he comes for the church, I have the consummation. When he comes for Israel, I have the remarriage. Does that make sense? Got all of that from last week? Again, this is symbolism, and it's hard to explain it to people. Much of you, or quite a few of you, have come to talk to me about it, and uh, and that's the only way to work it out. See me later for my baseball team is the church, and football team is Israel analogy. That seems to help people. Let me explain why. If I said to you, see, everybody thinks they don't understand that when he speaks of Israel, he is speaking of them as a wife who has committed adultery, who has gone through a separation with him, who has gone through a bill of divorcement, who has gone into a punishment stage and is awaiting redemption or remarriage. That's how he is speaking of Israel, as if they are a wife who has done all of that. When he speaks of the church, he talks about them, us, that's us as a betrothed bride that is set apart waiting for him, whom he will come at midnight with the shofar, with the, behold, the bridegroom comes, and he will abduct. So now my baseball analogy. The church is a baseball team. And so after nine innings, you know, maybe if the score is tied, we go into extra innings. Is that, is that making any sense to you? This is, were you weird before you came to Cliffside? And did Cliffside make you weird? I'm hoping that it is the latter, actually. It gives me a sense of power and authority. That makes me feel warm. Or I'm getting hot flashes out of sympathy. Thank you for laughing. I'll get a, I'll get a beating later. Um, but... Baseball teams play nine innings. They have relief pitchers comes in in the eighth. I got the closer in the ninth, right? I might, uh, if I'm in the National League, I got no designated hitter. I got to let a, I got to let the pitcher bunt. Boy, that's exciting. Or I could have Mickey Mantle jerk one over. Which do I prefer? Never mind. That's a see where I'm from. Football teams play four quarters. They have a halftime. They have a two-minute warning, right? 
They're, they're both athletic teams, but the symbolism and the, and the nomenclature is different. If I, if the church were a baseball team, we'd be talking about, are, what inning are we in? If, if Israel is a football team, we'd be asking, what quarter are we in? Uh, the rules are different, but that's how it works. Israel is being discussed by God as the wife, as a wife that has already been married, has gone into adultery, that has been separated, divorced, and now is in punishment, is awaiting remarriage. That's how he sees her. The, the church, I say Israel, I hope I did that. The church is a bride, not yet married, not yet consummated. That is the difference. And people mix them up all the time. I get this more than anything. Well, God is committing polygamy. No. The symbol is a wife. The symbol is a betrothed bride. That's why it's so so important to know your betrothal marriage ceremony, your Jewish betrothal marriage ceremony that is in your bulletin. Feel free to take your bulletin home and keep it. Because it really, we've really done a nice job. Okay, Lori did of putting this all together for you. And you should keep this bulletin. I'll sign it later. Make it worth, okay, nothing. But you should keep it so that you have a copy. Absolutely, you should buy Mr. Chumney's book. Uh, it isn't as in-depth as, as um, perhaps I wish it was, but it's very good and probably right now the best work available. Um, so, Moses and Aaron at Numbers 20, where we're headed, is a very, let me repeat, mysterious passage, and I submit that it is almost universally misinterpreted, and that does not surprise me, should not surprise you, because most scholars are unaware of something about the book of Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy has so much to say about Numbers 20. Deuteronomy to the superficial, and this is, by the way, why everyone should own an Arnold uh, W. Fruchtenbaum book, uh, Footsteps of the Messiah. Uh, he's still alive, and, and uh, you can get his work off the Internet. Uh, look up Fruchtenbaum. Try to remember Fruit Tree if you can. Um, but Mr. Fruchtenbaum has done the definitive work on Israel, frankly, um, in all of, uh, all of the church today, in my view, maybe ever. But most scholars are unaware, first and foremost, that Deuteronomy is an ancient marriage contract. That's what it is. When you look up or read Deuteronomy, you see any reference in Deuteronomy at all, immediately you should say to yourself, this is an ancient uh, marriage contract. Deuteronomy to the superficial reader seems to be repetition of what Moses wrote earlier in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And as an aside, Deuteronomy means what? You can go with the dut. What does it mean? It means second law or repetition of the law, but that's not the purpose of the book of Deuteronomy. That's not its intention. Its intention is absolutely clear. Its objective is to take everything Moses wrote, and who wrote Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers? Moses. Moses took everything he wrote in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and he placed them within the framework of a marriage contract. That's what he did. So your marriage contract between Israel the wife and God the husband, if you will, is the book of Deuteronomy. And always know that when you're reading it or see any reference. So that's why I say to you, you have to have an understanding of this marriage contract or you're going to get lost. That's why you have your collector's edition numbered, signed. Okay, neither of those. Cliffside Community Chapel.
authentic, watermarked bulletin. What does God call himself all the time? I am a what? A jealous God. What's he mean? That is within the framework of what? A marriage contract, a marriage ceremony. He is a jealous husband, if you will. And Israel is the wife. Whenever you see God describe himself as jealous, you should immediately see and search for the marriage uh, adultery symbolism or the marriage contract context, if you will. And... Um, And failure to understand the purpose of Deuteronomy is going to lead to interpretive mistakes. If you don't know that that is a marriage contract framework, then you're going to get in trouble. And those kind of errors, by the way, are most common. That's what you get most of the time, I'm sorry to say, in commentaries or churches or or monographs or whatever, because of that failure, that fundamental mistake to start out badly in the book of Deuteronomy is to end badly. Anyway, uh, that is why we are at Numbers 20 today, because you are able to solve Numbers 20. As I said, very mysterious. You're able to solve Numbers 20 by applying the context of the Jewish uh, betrothal wedding pattern. The key to Numbers 20 is one of these steps. Pick a step. Which one do you think it is? You can all vote together. In fact, as I've said many times, I've separated people within the congregation as to whether or not they agree with me. Those who disagree would go over, say, in that section, there's only a couple of you there today. Uh, But what step do you think? uh, How do I solve Numbers 20? Do you know what Numbers 20 is, by the way? Does anybody not know? Never raise your hand here. You heard that, didn't you, young lady? Good. Good. You were tempted there for a second, weren't you? Almost had you. Okay, don't do it. Good. Never invite anybody without proper warning. I'll tell you, the key is step eight. Let me read it to you, step eight. The bridegroom departs to prepare a home for the bride. John 14, 1 through 3. Christ actually uses the exact words of the ceremony there in John 14, 1 through 3. If you don't know that, you'll misunderstand what he's trying to say there, which is very common as it always is. But if you know the key to Deuteronomy, or I'm sorry, to Numbers 20 is step eight of this ceremony, and you understand what a dramatic theodicy is. And I know there's some folks here that have never heard me say that, so let me put it up there. So at least you see the words, a dramatic theodicy. You've got to know what one of those is, or you're going to get in trouble in Deuteronomy right there. But if you know what that is, and why God employs them, and when and where He employs them, the number one place that God employs a dramatic theodicy, I think, in all of Scripture is probably at Gethsemane, uh, Matthew 26, 36 through 52, or if you wish, Genesis 15, uh, where the, uh, the, the animals are divided except for the birds and the burning lamp and the uh, smoking furnace go through them. Those two uh, passages in Scripture, by the way, are, have the identical subject material. Genesis 15 and what he says at Gethsemane with regard to let this cup pass. That is a dramatic theodicy, probably the primary one in all of Scripture. Put those two together, you'll solve Gethsemane and you'll solve Genesis 15. Anyway, that was for free. Hopefully you remember that last week I commented that it is significant that both Moses and Aaron died in a very unusual way. Both die on a mountain. Both die how? I had one guy in one class many years ago said, God murdered them. 
And I thought, wow, interesting take. Did God kill them? Yes. Both of them die at the hand of God. And both die as a result. It seems. Notice how I put it. Seems to the quick reader of Scripture. Both die as a result, it seems, from what happened in Numbers 20. It seems, it seems in Numbers 20 that Moses and Aaron stage a rebellion. We need to understand what exactly they did and why, and why it is called a rebellion. So let's start accumulating the pieces. That's what we should do, and we'll go to the death of Aaron. The death of Aaron does not seem to make any sense at all. And that's what? That's really cool. Because if it doesn't make any sense, then there's something really wonderful hidden there. So let's read that together, or you can listen to me. Did you put it in the bulletin for them? No, you put numbers, uh, you put numbers 21 through 13 in there. So if you're not familiar with numbers 21 through 13, this is a good chance to do to multitask, to listen to about the death of Aaron and to get the rest of it put together. I'll give you a head start because I need to erase the board. Has everybody got this memorized, Amanda? Okay. If Amanda says it's okay to erase the board, then it's okay because I'm not able to do anything here without approval from Amanda or Lindsay. That's how it works. No one laughed because we know it isn't funny. Okay. Here we go. Numbers 20, 22 through 29. Now, the children of Israel, the whole congregation, very important, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall die here, essentially. That's what he says. Now, put yourself in Aaron's position. God says, today's the day you die. Is God omniscient? So what's going to happen today? Today's the day you're going to die. Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah, which is Numbers 20. Take Aaron and Eleazar, his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments. Now, immediately, you would say, I'm going to help you right here. Is this bad? No. This is fantastic. That's a cool song. I wish it was for me. This is fantastic for Aaron. Who else in Scripture? I'll just help you here. I'll get ahead of myself. Who else in Scripture gets stripped of his garments? Christ himself. So, does Aaron, Aaron, does he know what is happening? Why this is happening? Let me keep going now. Strip Aaron, most of the people who read this say, oh, this is really bad. 
This is bad. Aaron's being humiliated. He screwed up. He rebelled. And God is going to kill him in front of the whole congregation. And that will teach him and everybody that's watching. That's the way most people interpret this. That is horribly wrong. That is not what happened. We'll get to that in a minute. And that will help you. And Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. By the way, is it good to be gathered to your people? Oh, yeah. Nothing ain't better than that. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And there's your clue as to what's going on. That's critical. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. Now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. Okay? So here we go. Aaron, oops, can't even make an A. More medicine. Had to make two A's in a row. That's what got me. Couldn't do it. Now here comes the third A. Aaron, Aaron shall be gathered. Okay? He shall not enter the land. Not enter. He dies, how? At the hand of God. How do you think God did it? He is stripped of his garments. Are you saying I'm out of order? Yes, I'm out of order. It's too late now. (laughs) Stripped of his garments. Did you tell the lovely young lady that you brought that you were trouble here in the class? Did you let her know? Okay, good. Good. (laughs) Stripped of his garments. What's missing there? I could make it a lot plainer if I said then they gambled over him, right? Okay, couldn't I? But I didn't, so you could fit that together. Uh, And he did it before all of the sight of the congregation, so everybody saw that. That's really important to know. What's happening here? What's going on? Why are they doing this? What is this called scripturally? I mean, doctrinally or in theological schools. What is this called that's happening? You can do it. What is it? It's a dramatic theodicy, absolutely correct. That's what's going on. And if you don't know that, then you may think, that Aaron's getting punished. That's not what's happening. You may think this is punishment. I won't tell that to the internet people. Here's why it's good to come here. You've now learned something ahead of them. You may think that's punishment. Does Aaron think that's punishment? Uh-uh. He doesn't think so. He gets to die this way. Okay, now they're up to a speed. That's pretty cool. Who gets that, by the way? Who gets that? Aaron does. Okay? And he dies on top of a mountain. Top of a mountain. And there's this transfer 
to Eleazar. Okay? That sums it up. And this is what I, I always ask people all the time, and it's a trick question. Why is God killing Aaron? For what reason? Why is God killing Aaron? Think it through. For what reason? Here's the reason. In the sight of the congregation. That is why God is killing Aaron. And Aaron knows it. Is this punishment? You can answer that question. No. Is this fair? Yes. Is this good? Yes. Always ask, how is this good? What is being taught to Israel? Have you found the portrait of Christ? Do you see the great honor that God bestows on Aaron? Okay? I hope you do. Now let's go to Deuteronomy 34. Because it helps you if you do understand what's going on. Now I'm going into Deuteronomy 34. What's the first thing I gotta do? I'm sorry, I got the wrong, there is no 34. Um, and I know that. Where am I really headed? 32? 33. No, 34. I did right. Okay. Moses' death. Deuteronomy 34. I want you to begin to understand what's happening to Aaron so that you can figure out what really happened at Numbers 20. So here we go, uh, verse 5. Deuteronomy 34. Uh, actually, I'll go back up to four. Then the Lord said to him, Moses, this is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So here I have, with Aaron could not enter, and now Moses cannot enter. So Moses, the servant of God, died there. Okay, Both of them die, both of them on a mountain, both of them at the hand of God. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave. I'm talking about Moses dying at the hand of God, and now we're talking about the grave. And Matthew, by the way, he's buried in a valley. What's the first thing you think of about the body of Moses? I hope you say Jude 9. Because Jude 9, I have the very one who yells those two things, fighting with Satan over the body of Moses, right? The one, Michael, the archangel, who screams out, Blessed is he who comes, and behold, the bridegroom comes, fights over the body of Moses with Satan. Obviously, he wins because... Moses is buried in a valley and no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. My natural vigor is certainly diminished. That is apparent every Friday evening. But Moses wasn't. How old is he, by the way? Yeah, his life is divided up into three forties. He's got 40, 40, 40. So he's 120, and he's doing good. But it is time for him to what? Die on a mountaintop. Why? 
And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plain of Moab thirty days. So the day of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, notice now I have a transfer, don't I? Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So that's a very smart man. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since, and this is the critical part, but since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses. Why not? Because of Deuteronomy 18.15, the like unto me promise. But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. And there you go again. We're performing it in the sight of Israel. So you start to see all of these things. Moses gathered, Aaron gathered, neither one of them could enter. They both die on a mountain. They both die at the hand of God. Aaron is stripped of his garments. That's critically important. He's the high priest. And this transfer in the sight occurs. And then Moses is told, there's nobody like Moses. He was face to face. He had mighty power and great terror went before him. No one knows his grave. Matthew 17 comes into play, by the way. How come? When I'm talking about Moses. That's the mount of what? Transfiguration. Who shows up there? Moses does, along with Elijah. What's the obvious question? Is he disembodied? Or does he have his body back? He's got his body back. What's the next obvious question? How do you get it back? Who gave it to him? Who had it? Who gave it to God, if you will? That's a bad question theologically. Okay? Just from a human standpoint. Who did God send to get it? Jude 9. Michael the Archangel, right? So there's a lot of mystery about the body of Moses. Very important. Okay, now Numbers 12. But anyway, we're reading Deuteronomy 34. And Deuteronomy 34 is what? What is it? What is it? Come on, you can do it. It's a marriage con- contract framework. The whole book, all of it. Now, Numbers 12. Here we go. We're going to read Numbers 12.3 because this becomes very important as we speedily go towards Numbers 20. Numbers 12.3. Now, the man Moses was very humble. Who's talking about? Moses, by the way, wrote that, but who told him to write it? God did. The Holy Spirit inspired. He is very humble. That's Moses. More than all men who were on the face of the earth. This is the most humble created man that has ever lived. I had Jehovah's Witnesses come and visit me yesterday. They're my friends now. And it was a very difficult time for them because I start out by asking, is Jesus Christ created? And what did they say? Yes. I say, okay, you're doomed. No hard feelings. I'm sorry, not really fake sorry. 
you're doomed because he says, you must believe I am. If you do not believe I am, John 8, you will perish in your sins and you do not believe that he is the I am. And so, you will perish. How does that make you feel? It was a very difficult exchange for her. There was two of them. They said, Jesus Christ is a God. And I said, there's no such thing as a God. There is God. There are no other gods. Not a God. So what is he? You have him created, which means you are doomed. You will perish in your sin. So, well, I'm not, I'm not sure who he is. I'll help you out. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is creator God? She said, no. Good. We've ended it now. And by the way, that's coming up at your trial, which could be any day now. We don't know when your trial will be, but you will stand before him and he will say, when you were asked by that old funny looking man that needs a haircut, do you believe that I am God? You said no. And the consequences to saying no to the deity of Christ is eternal condemnation. Thank you for visiting me today. She told me at the very end, uh, her parting remark, bless her heart, and I thought for a second, I might have really gotten through. It's not easy because they have to give up their entire community. But I may have, I, I wobbled her legs. You could see it visibly in both of them. Oh no. And I said to her, or she said to me, I cannot believe that God died for three days. And she's walking away. That's her parting shot. That's supposed to win the argument. And I said, I can answer that in 30 seconds. I can destroy it in 30 seconds. Turn around and come back and talk to me. Or come by another day. The house is easy to find. It's kind of unattractive, but it's big. And it needs paint. And it's got a broken down van. That was before Max came. But come back. You think you have something difficult. I can put it on a tee and hit it out of the park 15 seconds. End it forever for you. And I could see her wobble a little bit as she walked on. See, she thinks that Christ is his body. He's not his body, is he? You're not your body. The body, when I die, the wonderful song that Ken is planning to do just as soon as we can get organized. When's that going to be? Who knows? But the song says, what's the name of that? All my tears, right? It says essentially this, it don't matter where you bury me. Or you bury the body. You are not the body. You are not your body. You are your soul spirit. And the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, bless their heart, are broken down over the body. The body of Christ died at his authority, under his authority, with his will, commanding it to die. What did he do afterwards? Did he cease to exist? She thinks upon death you cease to exist. Do you understand that? That's what they believe. They have a biblical holism view. Now, just because I put the word biblical in front of holism doesn't mean it's biblical. It's not. It's called biblical holism. And they believe that when you die, you cease to exist. And now I'm running out of time to do my lecture. When you cease, they believe you cease to exist and that the, the spirit is subject to the physical body. The spirit is eternal, it is immortal, it is not subject to the body. God always calls you a living soul. That's who you are. 
Steve is a living soul. Kathy is a living soul. Joel's new friend, living soul. She told me her name. Markel. She is not her body. She is her soul, right? That's simple. 15 seconds. Done. Next question. Numbers 12, 7 through 8. He says this. This is where Aaron and Miriam decide they're going to, going to try to sneak around Moses. But he says this about Moses. He says, my other prophets, I visit them in dreams and visions. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, not in dark sayings or parables, if you will. And he sees the form of the Lord. Who's he seen, by the way, when he sees the form of the Lord? He's seen Jesus Christ. That's a Christology or a Christophany or a Theophany, whichever one you wish to make it. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He is very humble. He is the only one that I speak face to face. So look for the John 5.39s here. That which is testifying of Jesus Christ. That which is him in type. Because all of those things that he's saying about Moses, they're applicable to Christ in a much higher realm in the sense that Moses was only the type. That's the Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18.15, look for a prophet who has my characteristics, not because I'm something special, but because he's using me to help you identify him. Christ is the prophet. That's what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 18.15, a prophet unto me. But clearly Moses was greatly honored that he is the deliverer of Israel. He he is the face-to-face. He has death at the hand of God himself. He is the most humble. How much does God love this man? A lot. Now, comparatively, and make no mistake, there is no comparison. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, and his humiliation cannot be compared to Moses's. Christ is the face of God. Moses saw the face of God. Christ is the invisible made visible. And Christ... Uh, when nobody fought over his body, he has an empty grave. He has he isn't mighty and and brings terror. He has all the power. He's omnipotent, and every knee will bow him and he to him, and he is the judge of all things. John five twenty two. So Moses is a little dim, tiny picture of Christ, and would never say otherwise because he is very humble. Moses is. Notice how I say Moses is. But I want you to see the portrait of Christ that is the scriptural account of Moses, which is why the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write certain things down. Didn't write everything down, but certain things Moses wrote down because they are portraits of Christ. That is why they are written and why they are recorded. Now that's how we start the mysterious Numbers twenty. And now my Bible has a silly headline, and yours may have it too. Um, those of you who have a Bible, go to uh, Numbers 20, or you can use your bulletin. We got rid of the silly headline in the bulletin because they want to put it, all the Bible uh, transcription services want to put the same silly headline. So what does your Bible have at Moses, or I'm sorry, at Numbers 20? A water from the rock is good. What does yours have, Misty? Numbers 20? Well, no, Miriam died back here. Numbers 20, it says death of Miriam? Oh, oh yes, okay, okay, yeah, okay, yes, you can, I, I can take that. 
Good enough. And what does else, anybody else say? Angry Moses? Moses' error. That's the one I searched for. They say this is Moses' error. Okay. So, let's go to verse 2. Now, there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And by the way, Moses didn't make an error. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord, why have you brought us the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grains or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the Shekinah glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck, actually killed, the word is smote, killed the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Mirabah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hallowed among them. Okay? Where am I now? I want you to disregard any commentator who suggests that Aaron and Moses were in error, attempting to draw attention to themselves or self-aggrandizement of some kind. Okay? And I want you to notice that uh, Moses' error doesn't fit with any of the descriptions that I gave you, the very humble uh, face-to-face. But something happened here. God says that uh, they didn't believe him, and they rebelled. He calls it a rebellion. So the obvious questions start to fly out at you, right? How exactly did they rebel? What is their rebellion? What exactly did they not believe? Because he calls it not believing. How was God not hallowed? What is the connection to not entering the land? Why did Aaron die first? Why didn't they die together? Oh, he, Aaron's had a tough go. Next question is, what about the golden calf? Okay. How does this all apply to step eight of your marriage betrothal ceremony, which is the key to understanding it, right? Those last questions I added for those of you who have heard this lecture before and you want something extra to do. You see, Aaron's action at the Golden Calf event must be explained. He seems to be a willing co-conspirator there. Right? But Aaron suffers no apparent consequences to that. And, and now you've got to ask, what about Nadab and Abihu? Right? Remember discussing them a couple of weeks ago? 
Certainly, we have to compare the deaths of Moses and Aaron to the deaths of Nadab and Abihu. They have very similar elements to them. But why wasn't Aaron removed as high priest at the golden calf? 3,000 people died there. I want you immediately to compare Acts 2.41, where 3,000 people are saved. Again, I've got why well, I erased it off the board. I have Mount Sinai, Israel, the wife. I have Acts 2, the church, the bride, right? 3,000 died, 3,000 saved. That is not a coincidence. Anyway, Aaron must also be compared at the golden calf. And here at Numbers 20, side by side, if you will. You've got to lay them side by side, as Joel in the front row said. And and the, this is the second of the living water from the rocks, right? Where's the first living water from the rocks? Exodus 17. 1 Corinthians 10.4. Once again, a second time, there is no water. What's the obvious question? Yes. Why has God done this how many times? Twice. He does it two Times. Why does he do it two times? Why doesn't he do it five times, seven times, ten times, twelve, three times? He doesn't. He does it two times. Exodus 17, here at Numbers 20. The real question is, he didn't do it once. He proved he could do what with a rock? If you kill the rock, what comes out of the rock? 1 Corinthians 10.4. Living water comes up. The rock is Christ. I hope you got that. One of the first typological studies you should ever do. That should be in your... Jenna should be doing that with the kids. That's sad that that isn't happening. But he doesn't do it once. He does it twice. 17 Exodus, 20 in Numbers. What is thus implied? The only time that they've needed water in 40 years is how many times? Twice. How many people I got here? I have millions of people. I got goats and chickens and old women pulling carts. I got all kinds of stuff here. That doesn't mean that old men don't pull carts. Old men usually what? That's right, riding the carts. Just want to point that out. In case, in case anyone, you were wondering. He has provided water at all other times. Forty years of water except for twice. By the way, what else has he provided? Forty years of manna and forty years of clothing and shoes not wearing out. And that is where in the Bible? Yes, it's in Deuteronomy 29.5, which is a marriage promise. Bill was talking about promises during his elder talk, wasn't he? I will, those are conditions of a what? They sounded like what? What Bill was talking about. Marriage vows, didn't they? Solve so many things when you understand marriage. But shoes don't wear out. Why not? <coughs> Clothing. Uh-oh. Marriage contract element. A promise. A legal accomplishment. That's step four. What do these three have in common? The water, the bread, and the shoes, and the garments. Anyway, only twice does God withhold water. The most obvious of the obvious questions. What is he teaching Israel and us about his plan of salvation and about the person of Christ? Notice that immediately the people of Israel gather together against Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron are surrounded. And there you go, your surround theme again. Surround theme is in uh, Psalm 22. It's in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's in Judges 19, right? 
It's with the adulterous woman who is going to be stoned. I have the surround theme. I have it in Psalm 118, by the way. What do you suppose the people who are surrounding Moses and Aaron intend to do? Where We don't have water. This is the second time we don't have water. We're dying. This is an evil place you brought us to. Uh, you're going to kill our animals. We should have died in Egypt. By the way, who are these people 40 years later? How many of them even lived in Egypt? We should have died with our brethren. Which brethren? What do you suppose the people of Israel have in mind? They cry out to die as their brethren died. Is that the coral rebellion, the golden calf, the quail, the bronze serpent? Is that attrition in the wilderness? How much time has passed since the exodus of Egypt? It's safe to say that the majority of these folks never likely lived in Egypt. And the people of Israel accuse God of not what? Not fulfilling his what? Promises. When did he make those promises? And what kind of ceremony did he make them? It's a marriage ceremony. They're saying, you're not keeping your marriage vows here. He's not keeping his marriage contract, step four. This is not a place of grain and figs and pomegranates. They say, we're dying of thirst. You made us come up out of Egypt. You made us. We didn't want to. Then they say, you're a liar, don't they? You didn't keep your promises. And this place is evil. If this place is evil, you don't keep your promises. You're a liar. You brought us to an evil place. What are they saying about God? Calling him evil, aren't they? And Moses and Aaron are what? They're part of the plan. They're evil agents of God. And so they're surrounded. The prophet and the high priest, surrounded by Israel, being accused of being evil. What is the intention of these people? I submit it is the same as it is every time. They came believing that they had the ability to do something. I love that one line, one comic. He's not a good comic to listen to, obviously, but he said something that I thought was profound. He said he was arrested one time, and the officer said that uh, he had the right to remain silent. And he said, I knew I had the right to remain silent. I just didn't have the ability. Well, these Jews have surrounded Moses and Aaron, this congregation, and they thought that they had the ability to do something. What did they think they had the ability to do? They thought they could kill Moses and Aaron. Could they kill Moses and Aaron? How do Moses and Aaron die? God does it. That makes them two of the most special people in all of Scripture. They die in the sight of the congregation on mountains at the right exact time. Certainly Moses and Aaron have a deliberate. I want you to see, by the way, Gethsemane and the trial and the crucifixion with regard to the surrounding uh, nation of Israel thinking they can kill somebody. But certainly Moses and Aaron have a deliberate, carefully thought through plan. You may not agree, uh, but consider again the wisdom that these two have. I want you to think about Numbers 12. They have a plan. I call their plan the Nadab-Abihu option. I'll explain that why I think that next week. Moses decides not to speak to the rock. What did he think would happen next? He decides that he's going to strike it, kill it twice. Not just one more time, two more times. You know, beat the crud out of the rock. Why? How smart is he? Numbers 12. How smart is he? Really smart. How, is he self-aggrandizing? Is he saying, look at me, look at powerful Moses? 
No. The evidence says he's very humble. So why is he killing the rock again? And not just one more time, twice. What would be the result if Moses deliberately, in absolute conflict with the doctrine of Exodus 17, how many times does Christ have to die? Once. Does Moses know that? Yes, he does. The death of the rock that causes the flow of living water. In absolute conflict with the doctrine of the first coming of Christ, Moses smotes the rock two more times. Does Moses know what he is doing? Does Aaron know what Moses is doing? I say, yes, they do. It's their plan. They may argue over whether or not they have a good plan. Actually, I think they do. Why are they doing this? Would God give water or no water? Water or no water? What did Moses and Aaron think? You're going to get water? I am going to do the opposite of what God said. Am I going to get water? If I don't get water, what's going to happen? I'm surrounded by people that want to do what? Kill me. Will God protect me? Did he protect Nadab and Abihu? Will he let this nation of Israel tear me and my brother Aaron to pieces? What did they think? Was this putting in their two weeks notice? I think Moses and Aaron expected no water. And the progression would be obvious. Now figure out what it is that Moses and Aaron don't believe. By the way, you're now back at Genesis 15, Matthew 26, 36 through 52, Matthew 4. That's where you are again. You've got to go to Ezekiel 28, 16, the abundance of your traffic. And then you've got to solve Deuteronomy 137, Deuteronomy 126, and Deuteronomy 4, 21 through 24, which will require that you understand dramatic theodicies to do so. Let's rise and be dismissed.